Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. I, I would uh, ask you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Or if you want to use one of the Bibles in front of you, in the back of the pew, uh, Galatians 3 is on page 973 in the pew Bible. We're going to continue working our way through this gospel-saturated letter that Paul has written uh, to the, the young converts in Galatia. The first couple of chapters he spent, a lot of his primary emphasis was uh, legitimizing his message as being from God, directly from God, and not a gospel that he had made up or he had heard from someone else. But then beginning in this chapter, with these few verses we're about to read, we hear Paul rebuking how he sternly deals and rebukes the young converts uh, for, for faltering in how they originally began uh, in the faith. And we start hearing him really teach and preach the message, the meat of the gospel. So this is God's holy word. Let's read it as such. The first six verses of Galatians chapter 3. This is God's word. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have it in the English language in our hands. We can have it in our homes. We can read it as often as we like. And we pray, Lord, that you would use your word to change our hearts even in this next half hour. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to hear what you're telling us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Excuse me. I thought about my dad and mom this week more than I usually do. Um, our house uh, is about a thousand miles from here. My dad's uh, third year of the anniversary of his death was this week. So I called my mom uh, on Wednesday because I knew she would be thinking about my dad. And, and it was great. We talked about some fun memories, uh, as you might suspect he was a man with a wit, with a sense of humor, and I thought about something that uh, we actually talked about this, and I, I thought it went so well with this message. He used to tell me to roll up the hose and hang it on this hose rack that was on the back of our house, and he kept telling me, he kept explaining to me how, how to roll up exactly how he wanted it and how he wanted it on that rack, and I told him 
Dad, uh, you've told me that at least a million times, not exaggerating, and I know how to do it. I get it. And he would say, well, until you really get it and you roll it up right and hang it on there right, I'm going to keep telling you. And I would roll my eyes and do it. Pastor Jeff and I were talking about how it seems like for the past four or five weeks, we keep saying the same thing about we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And wondering if some of you are thinking, we get it. Why are you going to do this yet again? But obviously, the Almighty God thought it was important enough for Paul to continue to pound it into the people. And I understand that a, a large percentage of you listening to this message this morning do indeed, do indeed get it, that your conversion happened by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But I would argue that many of us struggle with this works righteousness thing. And so the gospel... It says in Romans 5, 8 that he, God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that bloody death on the cross is our only hope. Not 95% chance in that what he did and 5% what we do, but 100% of our trust should be in that hope says in Ephesians 2.8, For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. Not even the faith is from yourself. God births in our hearts the faith to even understand him. And once we become believers by trusting only in the grace of his death to put us in right relation with him, relationship with him, we must continue to trust only in that grace to keep us in right relationship with him. And what I'm saying is the Bible teaches that we're justified but once. And we're also sanctified by faith for the rest of our lives. In Colossians it says this. It says, so then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in your good works. Strengthened in the faith. Strengthened in the faith. As you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. And by the way, you won't have to make a note to yourself to be to overflow with thankfulness. As soon as we grasp what he has done for us. When we grasp that not a scintilla of our Salvation, our standing before God is left up to us and what we can do and what we can accomplish. Thankfulness will just come out of our pores. A right understanding of this whole works grace issue is actually really important. The first step is when we're saved, when we're converted to Christianity. It happens once, and though it might take us years to get there, it happens, it's done. But then the process of sanctification, fancy word, takes place of just us becoming more and more like Christ. Us ridding ourselves more and more of our rebelliousness and our 
uh, our sin and growing closer and closer to the Lord. We do that until we breathe our last breath. The great Apostle Paul and God writing through him thought it was necessary to repeat this truth over and over in all sorts of ways through illustrations, through narrative, through uh, the poetry in the Bible, all sorts of ways. I'm, I've bro broken down these six verses just in four, uh, four parts. Four, actually, it's not really parts. Four areas of focus. And the first one is that Paul really is frustrated. He really is annoyed. But this is a good thing. And second... The danger of an attitude of deserving. And third, a deadly dependence. And fourth, just, just a sentence or two about the model that Abraham was as he brings Abraham into this, into this passage. So first, don't miss this tone of frustration in Paul's voice. Uh, it's so real. It's so raw. He's a missionary he doesn't stay at one church week after week like Jeff and I do. He had led these people to Christ, but he is flat out rebuking them right here. And I just wanted to point out that the very first verse has an exclamation, a question, and a declarative statement. And then the last five verses are five, Paul asks five rhetorical questions. Questions, And Jesus himself regularly called people out. Paul is calling these people out. Jesus called people out. This might surprise you what I'm about to say. You and I need to call people out sometimes in love if we love them. There's a place for you and I to call people out if we love them. If it can be done with a heart of love. I considered waiting to the end of this message to point that out as a little application. And I thought, no, I should put it up front because there's this mixture this, uh, of love and anger and frustration splashed all over these six verses that we're looking at. As we work through it, try to glean from it how he did it why he did it. We know what he did. And the why is because he genuinely loves them. He genuinely wants them to grow in their knowledge and their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he's addressing them in the first place. How he's doing it sounds like he's frustrated and that he's even a little bit angry. And the reason it sounds like that is because that's how he felt. That's how he really was. He was frustrated and confused. How could they be so dopey to forget what he had pounded into their minds over and over? I read in one of the commentaries, J.B. Phillips, some of you may have, he, he did a translation of the Bible years ago, um, trying to modernize. Uh, he was one of the very first ones. He said, it could have been written, oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, surely you cannot be so idiotic. I thought, man, I would have been a lot more tender in my approach. I would have probably said something like, you imbeciles. 
Are you kidding me? Who taught you this stuff that's making you falter? The point is that Paul was conveying that he was exasperated. He was frustrated with them. He was really gruff. But listen, he had earned that right because he had spent time with them. He had demonstrated that he cared for them, that he loved them many different times in many different ways. He referred to them earlier in this same letter as his brothers. Later, he refers to them as his children. Of course, he's talking about his spiritual children because he led them to the Lord. These believers with whom Paul is so obviously exasperated did love God, but they were sliding toward a very dangerous lie that could have plunged them into all sorts of darkness. And that, that brings us to our second point about what is that lie? That lie is the belief that they deserved to be in right favor with the Lord based on how they were behaving, based on the fact that they already believed. A work can be being proud of yourself that you believe. So it gets very hairy when they start depending on themselves. The lies that they deserve God's favor because of their ability to gin up righteousness for themselves by doing good things, by being obedient to the word. And doing good things and being obedient to the word, it's like I told the children, those are great things. But it's a lie to believe that this earns and merits right standing with God. Hear what I'm saying. It's great to do good things. It's great to stop doing those things we know the Lord would have us stop doing. It's great to start doing those things we know the Lord would have us begin to do. It's not great to depend on that, to trust in that, to earn merit, to earn favor with our God. Back to verse 1 in this Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The phrase there, it was before your eyes that Christ was publicly or clearly portrayed and crucified is referring to he had preached to them clearly. He had told them about Jesus being crucified twice in the first few verses of this book. It, he refers to the Galatians hearing with faith. That is, they heard him preach the meat of the gospel and they believed it. The significance of the phrase Christ was publicly or clearly is that they accepted the message. The Holy Spirit had enabled them to see with the eyes of their hearts Jesus crucified as if it was in technicolor. It was so vivid and so accurate. They got it. And now what were they doing? Why were they going back to the old way? You can believe Paul preaching to them wasn't dry like a lecture. Like some of you may think what I'm saying right now is dry. He had to be the master preacher. Oh my. We have it recorded what he preached. So we know he was a master preacher. He enabled, he painted portraits in their minds of who Jesus is. 
Listen to what Tim Keller of Redeemer Church up in New York City writes about this passage. It is important to notice that Paul did not bring good advice from Christ, but good news about Christ. His message was not first and primarily about what we must do, but Paul's message was about what Jesus had done for us on the cross. Let me read that again, because he puts it more clearly than I put it. It's important to notice that Paul didn't bring good advice from Christ, but good news about Christ. His message was not first and primarily about what we must do, but about what Jesus did for us on the cross. He continues, the main thing is not Christ the teacher. The main thing is Christ crucified. This means that the gospel is an announcement of historical events before it is instruction on how we should live. It is the proclamation of what has been done for us before it is the direction of what we must do. This also means that conversion always starts with the truth. Always, always, always. In James 1, it says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. In 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So James and Peter are both saying we're born again, we're saved through the word of truth. Keller also expands on the mention, which is not up there, which is the mention in the first verse of this chapter of the Gentiles' eyes. Keller says he believes it's, it's probably conveying that when conversion happens, the information about Christ dawns on us and awakens us. And he uses this example of these other young Christians in another church in Ephesus of their eyes being opened. It says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Look at that last phrase and let it settle in on you. According to what? According to the working of his great might. Keep in mind, Paul's writing this to believers. He's writing this letter to the Ephesian believers. They already know their hope. They know about their hope, their inheritance. They know about God's immeasurable power. But what Paul's praying for them is to have more than an intellectual knowledge when he speaks of the eyes of the heart. So a Christian is not someone who just knows about Jesus, right? We've said it many times from the pulpit. The demons know about Jesus and shudder. But they're not going to be dancing with us in heaven. It's not just an intellectual assent to some historical facts that he became a man, that he really was born in Bethlehem, that he really lived for about 33 years. He really was executed as a criminal. He really did come back to life. We can believe all of those things. We can even have a Bible in our living room, on the coffee table, not even up in a bookshelf. 
and not be a believer. He didn't just die at the hands of some Roman soldiers way back then. He died for me. He died for you, for your sins. He died to pay the price, to assuage the wrath of a perfectly holy God for your sins and for my sins. When that knowledge becomes real, when that knowledge becomes life-impacting in our lives, we begin to know Jesus and not just know about him. We begin to know Jesus and we begin to follow him the way he would have us follow him. Verse 2, Paul begins to reason with them by asking them some really tough rhetorical questions. He asked them if they, if they started off, basically he's trying to find out, did you start off the right way and then you strayed off? Well, he knows they did. They know they did by this point. He says, let me ask you only this in Galatians 3. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit in the first place he's talking about? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul knows that they know that they receive the Spirit by hearing through faith. Paul knows, as he asked that question, Paul knows that they know that they're not to continue through the works of the law or by anything they had done. Nothing they had done. Only by faith. That is, the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of the hearts of these new converts to believe in salvation as being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works. They started out trusting in Christ alone, but they were beginning to either worry about do's and don'ts or hurt their arm by doing all these pats on the back for what they were doing. I'm reading my Bible 34 days in a row. I hadn't cussed in almost seven hours. Have you ever heard the phrase in golf? It's not how you drive, it's how you arrive. Based on the looks, we have about two golfers in the room. <laughs> You know, the drive is the first time you hit it off the, the tee, the first shot on any given hole. I used to play a, little, play a little golf. I was definitely never good. You can ask Brent Moore or Pastor Jeff or Kurt Nelson. I'm not just being falsely humble when I say I wasn't good. I really wasn't good. I played with this guy who was really good. He could have been a... He thought about going into professional golf is how good he was and he drummed me every time we went and it wasn't so we could play each other because he knew he was so much better than me but two or three times or maybe more than that even five or six times in 18 holes 
I would drive past him 70 or 80 yards and be right in the middle of the fairway. Or he would be out of the fairway and I would be way past him but right in the fairway. And if he saw the slightest curl that I'm pleased, just if, I'm a little, little pleased, I, I drummed you on that shot. I, I wouldn't say that, but he would know I was proud. He would always pop my bubble by saying, it's not how you drive, it's how you arrive. But what he meant was I could drive it for a half a mile on the first shot and it'd be this far from the hole, but then if it took me four more putts to get it in the hole, which it regularly did, that's not good. It wasn't good for my heart health. It wasn't good for the condition of my equipment. <laughs> Meaning, of course, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. How you start most anything is nearly as important as how you finish. These people had received the Spirit by faith. But continuing to live in the faith is directly and inextricably connected to believing the gospel. The Spirit and the Word of God are indivisibly linked. The Spirit presses the truth of the gospel into our hearts. I told my mom this last week, I wish she could walk in the door with some of her sourdough bread. We had people seven, eight miles away call and say, Neva, are you making that sourdough bread? We can smell it. It was so good. And I'll never forget, it was such an odd thing to me when I was a very young boy. She would pull this gunk out of the refrigerator that she called starter. It was on a jar that had all these dates, and it was really weird. She would put this mush out and then put some flour on it and just start just, she would grit her, you know, make a face. She was having to work that flour into that dough. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? The Holy Spirit needs the Word of God into our hearts. He works, He presses the truths of the Word of God into our hearts so that we can understand the glories of what He's already done for us and the fact that He loves us. When we do good, He loves us. When we mess up, He loves us. He loves us. He loves us. Get that in your mind. He doesn't want you walking around in shame and feeling guilty. He's already paid for what you feel guilty for. When the Holy Spirit presses the truth of God's Word into our hearts... Amazing, life-changing things happen. Because God's word applied to our hearts, listen, is the most powerful thing in existence. God's word applied to a human heart is the most powerful thing in existence. It's infinitely more powerful than my mom's sourdough bread. I would say, that's powerful good bread, mom. It's infinitely powerful 
Because when understood and believed, it has eternal consequences. Third, depending on self is a deadly dependence. There are at least two objects of faith operative in your life and mine. And this little young church he was writing to, faith in God and faith in self to keep the law. Faith's not a bad thing. The law is not a bad thing. Both are good things, but the combination of trusting partially in God and partially in yourself and your performance or obedience can kill you. The end result will surely be death. Pastor Jeff and I were talking about the law and faith this week. And he said the problem isn't the works of the law. The problem is the attitude of, I'm doing it. (laughs) I'm keeping it. I'm cranking out the fruit of the Spirit. Look up Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Listen, there's no place in the Christian life for dependence on your works. Because that's really dependence on what? On yourself. And our God is a jealous God. Our God does not and will not share his glory with you or me or anybody else. I didn't say there's no place for works. I'm saying there's zero tolerance by God for people who trust in their own works in addition to what he did on the cross. It's not the cross plus. To depend on works to get them and keep them in right relationship with God. We're almost finished here. Galatians 3, 3 and 5 says, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul's poking in their sternum with his index finger, trying to get them to think about it. The obvious truth that their failed attempt at keeping the law is not how they receive the Spirit, nor will it be how they continue in the Spirit, nor will any obedience on their part. It's solely by His grace. To believe in the gospel is not merely an assent to facts about him. To believe in the gospel, if you forget everything else, I'm almost finished. The musicians are about to come back up. You can start getting little peppermints and pieces of gum so you don't grope people out with your breath at the end of the sermon. Start shuffling around. Listen to this. I stole this almost word for word from Tim Keller. To believe the gospel is to stop trying to achieve a good record. None of you try to keep a good record as much as I do. So I am preaching to the choir right here. Ooh, I want to impress. 
I want to keep a good record. But to believe the gospel is to stop trying to achieve a good record. We're to stop depending on self-exertion. Stop. It does not lead to spiritual maturity. It does not please God. The only record you and I can depend on is Christ's record. The only good deed we can depend on is his good deed that he's already done on the cross. It's by grace you've been saved through faith and this not of yourselves, not by trying or striving, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Fourth and finally, just about a sentence, Paul appeals to what he knows they know about their beloved father Abraham. They know He knew the Galatian Jews, at least, knew their Torah. And they knew that in Genesis, it said that Abraham believed God. And God credited it, counted it for his righteousness. But now they were being hoodwinked and bewitched into foolishly believing otherwise. And you and I need to learn from their mistake. One last seemingly peripheral note here is that I couldn't help but through this whole passage was just glistening with the love and sovereignty of God. His love, God's love to cause Paul to go to them and say, you dopes, who bewitched you, who cut in on you? Who messed you up? That's a loving rebuke that he did. What if he had not done that? You and I today in this sanctuary are enjoying this because of God's love through Paul and the foolishness of that young church. The best news of all this is the reminder that Jesus paid it all, all to him. I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you paid it all and that all to you we owe. Our own sin had left a crimson stain, but you, by your power, by your goodness, Your faithfulness washed it white as snow. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for cleansing us by your power. Lord, all of us ask for more faith to trust in you. To your name be all the glory. Amen.